You're listening to Sunny Side Up, a bite-sized podcast that brings you real-world insights that help go-to-market professionals evolve and stay up-to-date on the latest trends. Join us as we share best practices and proven techniques from industry experts and practitioners. Today's episode is made possible by Demand Matrix. Demand Matrix helps you complete your data stack with technographic, intent, and revenue potential data to help you accelerate revenue. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sunny Side Up. I'm your host, Asher Matthew, and I'm super excited to talk to Ben Royce today about cloud AI. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Ben, I'm excited because we're going to unpack a lot of key concepts that I feel next generation go-to-market or data science teams, oh, I'm sure data science teams already know about it, but next generation go-to-market professionals and executives really need to know about. And before we started the discussion, can you please tell us how you got to where you are? Sure. I can tell you the story. (laughs) Um, I uh, went to school for information science, and then I um, got involved in sort of data science as it became, uh, before it was called data science, it was more like really, really nerdy analytics and, and learning to code. Um, and that took me into the e-commerce world. Uh, and I started doing a lot of like, for example, e-commerce modeling, trying to figure out what the propensity of sales were, uh, what was the you know margin calculations, shipping predictions, that sort of thing. Um, that led me into the world of search, which was popular in the advertising world. Um, and I worked for a number of ad agencies uh, and consultancies and then ended up at Google after developing some, some uh, predictive and uh, clustering techniques for search data. Uh, and then as data science evolved, AI became, you know, more mature. It actually was, you know, decently defined. I'll put it like that. Uh, and that's when it sort of became like, I don't, I don't necessarily want to just do this for ads. I want to, I want to play with the technology more than, than, the, uh, than the business case. And that's, and that's how I got to uh, cloud AI. Fantastic. Fantastic. And let's dive straight into it, you know, <laughs> because the, I want to say, take as much time to, to discuss what is AI. And I say this because our audience is global and the word AI has, let's say, been cool for, I think, 15 years ago when I finished computer science and I was took an elective in artificial intelligence. And, uh, and now it seems like like there's less common sense and more artificial intelligence, <laughs> you know? So, but who knows? But, but, but what is AI? Like, how should we think about it? What's the mental model? Sure. I mean, the, the, the hype is kind of wild, right? And, yeah. and that's, I think that's mostly good and there's a little bit of a downside. So yeah, let's start from the beginning. So basically computers have been able to process data and make uh, sort of rules-based decisions. Like if it's more than, you know, if, if the number is more than 10, do this, right? That's always been very good. They're very fast at that. Um, the difference with when it comes to AI is that we're basically saying, hey, I'm going to show you all the decisions that were made. And then you learn what the pattern is, right? So it's almost flipping it on its head. So instead of saying, here's the rules, go put stuff through it. We're going to say, here's the stuff that came out of it. Go figure out what the rules were. It's like, um, if you remember maybe in school, inductive versus deductive reasoning, that sort of thing. Um, At the very simplest, it's basically uh, machines learning how to do things from large amounts of data. Um, there have been promises that have been made about AI that are probably not true and should not be believed. I'll definitely say that. Um, but 
it started a number of uh, years ago with decision trees. And then there were these things called support vector machines that sort of like we're getting very, very good at this kind of learning the rules on the fly as opposed to being told the rules. Um, as we got further and further into this stuff called deep learning, uh, which is basically much more complex and actually modeled after how the brain works, or at least what we know about how the brain works, that's when we started going from, hey, this is, you know, something relatively substantial. Um, there was this period from basically the 1970s until um, maybe the early 2000s that was called the AI winter. And that winter was basically saying not a lot of progress was made. We were making incremental improvements. But starting in the mid-2000s with the availability of large amounts of data and large amounts of computing power, all of a sudden it sort of like blossomed, if you will. So in short, AI is the ability for computers to learn how to make a decision as opposed to just being told how to make a decision. Um, that could be a prediction, like I'm predicting that it's going to be, you know, 75 degrees tomorrow, uh, or it could be I'm predicting that this image is a cat and of a, of a cat and not a dog, something like that. So it can do a number of things um, with predictions and, and, and classifications, um, but the core of it is that it learns from the data as opposed to being told what the rules are. So, and again, this is purely going to be different than most podcasts that I do and guess because you're such a knowledgeable person on this, on this subject. Now, the way I look at analytics, right, you have descriptive, prescriptive and predictive. And I feel like we are over-indexing on predictive because not enough analytics exists on just describing what the situation is so people can identify the problem. So that's my that's my mental model. And I, I love what you said. You're like, hey, we have AI, we have machine learning, we have deep learning. And you know, those are how you think about these things, right? But from a purely from a thinking and a reasoning perspective, my, my mental model is like descriptive, which is, hey, what is the state current situation? Like, what is the state of affairs today? Prescriptive is like, if I know what is causing the issue, can I prescribe something to fix the root cause, right? And then predictive is, if you don't take care of this, here are things that are going to happen based on things, other things, um, uh, or other samples that uh, that we have taken outside of this situation from a number of other scenarios, right? So right. is that the right way to think about this? Uh, yes, it, it, it's the right way to think about it because what's it, we, I think the AI research community kind of did this same mistake too, and they very quickly backpedaled and fixed it, which was good. I mean, you know, we should always reward people who, who admit their mistake and fix it, not just, yep. you know, cover it up, if you will. So, for example, we, we kind of leapt really far and, and, and deeply into predicting um, something. And then there was this kind of general backlash that sort of happened. I wouldn't say it wasn't, it wasn't public. It wasn't on the cover of the wall street journal or anything, but it was this constant murmur of like, why do you predict that? You know, if the, if the prediction is supposedly so good, can you tell me what drives that? And basically AI researchers had to backpedal a little bit and say, okay, okay, we made a prediction, but here's the the weighting of that decision. It's based on X, not Y, and because of this. And that was called explainability. Uh, and the funny thing was that was not the original uh, sort of process because the people, the practitioners of these predictions and this, these the, you know, machine learning predictions um, were so confident 
in what they were doing because it was reasonably much better than had been done in the past. And they kind of forgot to like walk people through the process, which is very, very common uh, in the analytical world is they kind of le uh, leap to the data versus the explaining how the data got there, right? So now we have these things called explainability or explainable AI. You'll often hear it called uh, sometimes it's called local uh, explanations or uh, inference, that sort of thing. Um, and that is basically saying like, yes, we have a prediction uh, that it's going to be 75 degrees tomorrow. Um, and the 80% of driving that prediction is that it was 75 degrees yesterday and 25% of it is there are no storms on the horizon or there's no pressure change, right? And that kind of explains why you think tomorrow is going to be 75 degrees, right? Before we were just like 75 degrees, don't worry about it. <laughs> that's that's while true it's clunky and can breed skepticism especially when you're dealing with very very complex things so weather is relatively easy um you know if you see a storm coming you know you've got two or three days or something to to kind of estimate what that's going to do where it lands becomes the variability but if you're predicting things like how well an advertisement is going to do, or you're predicting what the outcome of a trial is going to be, right? There is a lot more attention being paid and you kind of have to explain yourself even if you're right. And I think that was where the community kind of went forward and then backpedaled and kind of fixed it. Now, now we're you know back on track, I'd argue. Fantastic. And I guess, how should we think about natural language processing? Is that an AI thing? Is that an ML thing? Like, which one is it? That's a good point. Okay, so in the thing to note is that AI is a term is it is thrown around, and if you're in academia, it has a meaning, and if you're in industry, it has a different meaning almost. But they're not they're, they're they Venn diagram overlaps a little bit, you know. Um, so natural language processing, basically NLP or NL, um, it's often called natural language understanding too, because processing and understanding are kind of different. Again, Venn diagram, um, but you don't have to do machine learning to do natural language processing. Uh, it's arguably better if you do. <laughs> so basically what it is is saying here is hundreds of millions of sentences that have been written, usually on the internet or something like that, or in the New York Times or major publication or something like that. And uh, it basically tells these machines, hey, figure out what these words mean based on the sentence structure and just kind of how like you learn language it learns language. If it hears something, here's a word that's never been used, uh, here's a word it's never heard before, it's going to look at all the context, all the words that are describing it. It'll know if it's a noun or an adjective. It has a dictionary, that sort of thing, and allows you to parse the sentence, as they say, and understand what's being said. So prior to machine learning, um, natural language processing was good at kind of assigning scores to certain words. So if I said the word bad, bad would have a negative score and good would have a positive score. But what happens when I say, oh, that's not bad? It might not know that not was applied to the bad, therefore probably good or at least okay. So natural language processing with machine learning kind of fixed that sentence structure issue um, when it was applying like a sentiment score. Uh, okay. So so sounds like, like machine learning helped give natural language processing context. Exactly. It's still not perfect by any means, though. It gets things wrong all the time. And for example, like the worst, the worst thing you can do to an NLP system is be sarcastic. <laughs> and it's funny because I've given presentations where I show I'm like, by the way, like natural language processing, like machines don't understand sarcasm. And it's funny because they go, oh, it's so easy to detect. And I'm like, 
I don't know. There's a lot of times where I've been sarcastic and people have taken me very literally and they didn't pick up my sarcasm. Yes. Right? yes, yes. Uh, especially with like a dry sense of humor. Like how do you explain yes. to a computer what a dry sense of humor is? It's like, yes, it's way more complex than that. Yes. I would say that folks who are parents should understand machine learning or natural language processing or understanding way better because when your kid goes from two years to four years old and they're starting to understand, pick up emotion, pick up words and pick up things, you're going to start seeing. And and for those of us who were fortunate enough to actually be home and around uh, and respect to everybody that travels for work, the those folks will actually pick up daily or weekly differences in your kids or your child's ability to process, understand, and then act upon the information that they're giving. And this is a really key one, and maybe this has becomes a parenting one-on-one tip, but you actually have to like stay there and make sure your kid makes eye contact, make sure your kid is, <clears throat> is uh, breathing so that they're not feeling anxiety, you know, all these things. And if you look at AI the same way, right, you have to really be carefully careful in training this the right way. And, uh, um, and then once it's trained up, then they're just going to be stellar. And uh, that's why I keep on saying that people that are parents, uh, if they're in data science, I feel like have a natural advantage <laughs> yeah. to, to people that are not because they've actually experienced a very similar situation somewhere in, a, in their walk of life. And they're, and they're very good at identifying structure. They're very good at picking up structure, right? Yes. It's like part of it, is it? And so therefore, when you see this, you know, child developing, there's, not, yes. there's no reason that's like, oh, this is like, one of the mistakes I think we often make, especially in parenting, is we treat children like little adults. And it's like, no, 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 no. They are underdeveloped adults, right? Like, you know, they're, they're, they're still learning their ways and their, and their experience is going to matter. Just like in an artificial intelligence model, the way and the context that you train, uh, it will matter. And I've, I've fallen into this trap, like, I used to spend a lot of time analyzing, you know, hundreds of millions of YouTube comments. And I mean, the awesome thing about that job was that some of the funniest people in the world are in the YouTube comments, right? Like it's, they're hysterical. Like the cleverness, like the writing is brilliant and they probably aren't comedians, you know, in, in their day job, but they, they might as well be. Um, but when they're sarcastic, our machines would get confused and say like, oh, you know, it turns out that they really like this person. And you kind of read it with, with your knowledge of YouTube and you're like, I, I think they're all being sarcastic. <laughs> you know? And it's like, collective sarcasm is like the worst thing for a natural language. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I think the ability to process emotion is uh, has been true for a while, but even where we are today, uh, I don't think the machines can can actually process emotion. Although, uh, which leads me to the next topic that I would love your guidance and edu- uh, coaching on is GPT three. Yeah, I'm I'm literally getting stuff on GPT three like every single day on Twitter. I don't know what it is. I'm sure most people don't know what it is, and how do we use it? So GPT-3 is the next iteration, the latest iteration of uh, basically a um, trained model that can write language that sounds very, very human-like. Not like audio. I mean, like it writes an article that you would be like, that sounds like it was written by a journalist. Or, you know, they know how to, um, they've basically figured out a number of things in linguistics of how they can, you can write like a human 
and it makes sense. So for example, sentence structure is like the first thing, right? You got to, yes. how are you going to form a sentence structure that actually makes sense in English or, or whatever yes. language, right? That we've gotten pretty good at, at this point. We know how to identify a poorly structured sentence. Fine. Yes. Great. So app, apps like Grammarly or Hemingway, you know, those are probably using that technology. Right. Like you, you, it knows the difference between like, you know, I'm tired, I'm going to lie down versus IRB lie by down. <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's a, there's a, you know, you might get it. And this is actually what happens in a lot of translation. Like if you like one of my favorite research uh, topics I ever did was looking at um, how people process uh, kind of shortened summaries of things. If English is in their first language versus English is their first language. And it's not yep, because yep. your primary language is so laden with emotional resonance that often a lot of cognitive biases are even easier to exploit in your native tongue than in your second language. Because your second language does all the emotional baggage that came with the language has been stripped. And so you're only hearing kind of facts. It's really interesting research, right? So GPT-3, back to GPT-3, basically is very, very good at passing the Turing test. Like, can you tell it was written by a machine? And GPT-3 is immaculate. And it's owned, uh, it's owned by a, a nonprofit called uh, OpenAI, which is backed by a number of uh, big uh, luminaries in tech like Elon Musk and such. Um, and it's run by a guy named Sam Altman. Uh, Sam Altman was the CEO of Y Combinator, which is like pretty much the most premium, you know, startup accelerator, um, in and around the Silicon Valley. So, uh, he basically said like, yeah, startups are great, but AI is what's up. And he, he, and he made that jump and they released GPT three. Uh, and it's, it's uncanny how good it is. And you've probably already read articles written by GPT three in major publications because structured well, like news, like sports. Like if I have to write an article about what happened last night at the whatever game, like some football game or basketball game, the facts are pretty straightforward. What was the score? Who made the scores? The, it's structured numbers. Now you just have to put language around it. And GPT-3 is wonderful at that. Yes. It's the explosion of sales and marketing tools that can now write scripts, whether they're email, call, link, LinkedIn, text, yeah. It's can, crazy right now, right? It's You can write ad copy. And yes. it, so it's not just writing a good piece of ad copy because I'd argue that really creative, clever stuff is still probably in the realm. Yes, 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 100%. But if you want to write, if you ask a copywriter to write 10 different great, you know, ad copy, they're going to get a little frustrated with you and yes, it's going to take yes. a lot of time and effort. Yes. It, with GPT-3, for example, you can write 10,000 and then just yes. test them and let the best float to the top, right? So as long as it's, you know, making sense, it's, you know, English and it's resonant, which is pretty easy to do. Yeah, there's a massive, massive amount. And it's really helpful for conversational bots like chat bots and, and voice bots and things like that because it can talk to you in sort of like a, you know, yes, it's a bot, but it's as hum as human and helpful as as a um, you know human. Yes, and I guess we we kind of covered the intelligence versus insight uh, conversation point already, but but it's it sounds like like to get to real intelligence, we're a little bit far away. Uh, you know, it, it's not as uh, there's insight that you can get uh, from information that's fed into AI, but for it to be able to make decisions on its own and understand and be empathetic and all those other amazing things that humans have, uh, 
you th- that's still a ways out. Uh, yeah. So like, you know how people like Neil deGrasse Tyson and such, they, they talk about intelligence, intelligent life on other planets. Like their bar for intelligence is like an amoeba. <laughs> okay. Like they're basically saying like how, how, you know, they're like, is it, you know, on its own, is it a little better than maybe plants? Is it like how intelligent they have to be? And some of them have a higher bar where they say, well, they have to have communication skills or be able to develop basic technologies. So it's like the bar is pretty low, right? Like caveman. Yes. Yes. Um, when it comes to uh, insight, and this is this is something that I've rallied against for years because I, I, I we t- throw the term insight around way too easily. There's a hierarchy of things when it comes to like being insightful, and like the bottom is data, the the next layer up, like a food pyramid almost, is information, and then there's knowledge, and then at the very top is this beautiful diamond called insight. And the reason insight is so special is because it sort of has these kind of like properties that none of the others have. Like I can throw data at you all day. It doesn't really matter. Right. I can throw information at you all day and it's going to barely put a dent in things. Right. We have more than enough data, which is like a database and information, which is like a dashboard. Knowledge is where you start being like, Oh, here's what I can do with that. Here's what, you know, beyond the prediction, but actually the prescription, like you were saying before. Right. But insight, insight is it, I don't think anyone can reasonably call a statistic insightful verbatim simply because if I've heard it before, it's not insightful to me, right? That doesn't change the fact. It doesn't change the actual information, right? But it's, if I've already heard that stat or I've already implemented something based on that stat, it's not insightful to me. So it can be insightful. The same thing can be insightful to me and not you and, and vice versa. The other thing is that it has to be actionable. And that means that everyone can be new to this piece of information, but if it doesn't, if it's not able to be done about, it's not insightful. Like I remember, I'll never forget this. I was working on um, uh, with uh, Charmin, the, the toilet paper manufacturer brand. And I had found these weird patterns all of a sudden that popped up in a lot of the uh, search data uh, that showed that people were really, really interested in black toilet paper. Right. And I, you know, okay, that that is... The data basically said there's a new keyword. The information was black toilet paper is a thing. And the knowledge essentially was black toilet paper is not readily available on the market. And if it is, it's a specialty item, that sort of thing. Was it insightful? No, because it turns out that to manufacture toilet paper, you have to buy like a half a billion dollar machine. And they're not going to do that for a specialty item. That's why you don't see a lot of, you know, specialty toilet paper. Also, who would want that? But it turns out that the knowledge that went with that little piece of information was Kim Kardashian on her show had they had talked about having black toilet paper and they thought it was like fancy or something like that. Right. So it taken off. People were searching for it to see if they could get it. And it turns out it's like, you know, it is really, truly a specialty item that has to be you know custom manufactured. So was it data? Yes, I could prove that searches for black toilet paper had skyrocketed. Um, was it information? Yes, it was. It was informative. They, they got new data uh, that they had. Was it knowledgeable? A little bit. Was it insightful? Absolutely not. <laughs> because there's nothing we could do about it that, at scale, right? And, and I'm, I'm tracking with you. I mean, this is this is really good stuff. And then, where on this in this framework does intel the word intelligence fit in? Intelligence is what drives a lot of the information, knowledge, and insight, right? It's, it's the it's the mixed in ingredient. I don't think it's a I don't think it's a because you can have little intelligence and lots of knowledge, 
<laughs> right? Intelligence is like, uh, and this is this is something that I teach in my class at Columbia is um, intelligence. If you want to simplify it in, in the word IQ, intelligence is literally your ability to process things faster or things that are more complex. Really, that's pretty much it. That's the lowest common denominator. Um, high IQ people uh, just do things either faster or they do more complex things better, right? Um, and it's not, you know, by the way, IQ is not the best thing in the world. It comes with a number of caveats. For example, yep, yep, yep. And mental illness is much higher with higher IQ people. Like, you know, when, when the engine runs hotter, you have more problems. It's kind of like, the, you know, the, the, the kind of issue there. Um, they also get caught in something called a doom loop. This was, this blew my mind because we run into a lot of this in software engineering. Get very, very bright people doing really smart stuff. And they sort of get to, you know, two-thirds of the way through a problem and they can't solve it perfectly. And they kind of spiral in this lack of, like, this productivity downward spiral where they get caught up in something that literally has is not on on track for what they need to achieve. And they this happens with high IQ people, but not low IQ people, which is super interesting, right? Um, there's other there's other issues. For example, um, they also uh, high IQ people really really struggle with um, long feedback loops, which is really interesting because they often work on the most complex problems, right? Uh, high IQ people like basically do very very well when they're told right away you got it right you got it wrong right that's why they're often good test takers right they find out pretty quickly when they're right or wrong uh, so yeah IQ and as intelligence helps you get from data to information experience tends to help you get from information to knowledge and context helps you get from knowledge to insight but IQ just speeds all that up uh, or or allows you to go through that process with more complex data and and in the uh, let's call it the the military definition of intelligence is just getting getting more data faster about the unknown right is that the way but, to think about it yeah they say intelligence is in like uh it's essentially information gathering they kind of they it's funny because they use the term intelligence and it really means like information gathering and they have people process and say, is that, yes, that yes, helpful, yes, is that useful, yes, is that yes. knowledge, you know, add our knowledge to it. Um, the funny thing is when they don't, they don't actually use the term intelligence when they're actually talking about IQ, they, they, they call it the cognitive aptitude, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> so, okay. So you said something super interesting. So IQ helps process data into information. Mm-hmm. And then what was the thing that helps process information into knowledge? Information to, to, to knowledge is uh, experience. So you can be, there are people who have lots of great experience, right? And they're knowledgeable on stuff because they've experienced it, right? If they're high IQ, it just, they just process and get to that knowledgeable state faster. That's pretty much yeah. it. But um, Very cool. I, I mean, they, yeah. they, I have never heard of it put this simply, but this is fantastic. Thank you it, for sharing that. So they call it like, like the information hierarchy, like data, information, knowledge, insight. Yeah, yeah that's yes. relatively well known. Yes, yes, yes. The, the organizational context is what what everyone's so like because everyone wants to be insightful. But the fact is, it's actually a very ephemeral, very con- contextual thing, yeah. uh, and I think we should treat it as such. Yes, absolutely. And if you don't get it naturally, don't try to push insightfulness because it actually backfires more than it helps. Yeah, if you tell someone a, a stat they already know, 
you've wasted their time. Hundred <laughs> percent, right? Hundred percent. You're absolutely right. Okay, I want to shift gears to the infrastructure that allows us to process all of this data and get us to information. Um, and 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 it just feels like every vendor out there has some level of AI processing ability now. It's in your phones, it's in your graphic cards, it's even in your speakers. You know, like like literally you can't walk out your door and be hit with AI or some machine that can leverage AI technology to even mow your grass or something, right? And so, so I would love to get some guidance and education on where are we infrastructure-wise with the movement from on-premise to cloud? Yeah. So... You can do AI with your laptop. You don't have to be connected to the internet or anything because you have a processor and you can process data. If it's a small model or a small training set, that's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Uh, On-premise is just basically a bigger version of that. It's basically saying like, hey, we've got a bunch of servers sitting in the back room. They're processing all the data. Great. Um, when you're getting really, really big, right, you can either make your on-premises uh, data center larger and that's expensive and the option, the other option is to go to a public cloud, like a, like a Google Cloud, Azure, AWS, whatever. And that allows you to essentially rent those servers when you need them for the milliseconds that you need them, right? So you can scale up and scale down. And credit to Amazon, they're the ones who kind of figured this out as a, as a service first. They, and you know, the, a, a really brief history of cloud, I think this is fascinating because I came from the e-commerce world, was that the majority of shopping in the e-commerce world, like online shopping, happens in, in, the, in, in Q3 and Q4, right, of most years, you know, around the holidays, right? And so Amazon had to buy all these servers, like tons of them, just for October, November, December. And then when January came, they didn't really need them, or at least most of them they didn't need, right? So what they did is they basically started building as if every month was December and then rented out all the other servers, you know, January through October, right? And that's actually how it started because they had unused computing space, but they needed it every year, just only for a part of the year, right? Yes. And it's super interesting. It's like, oh, that's very are, interesting. Are, like, yeah, exactly. Like Western shopping habits literally created cloud computing as far as I'm yes. concerned, right? Which is really interesting, <laughs> right? Um, and then of course, you know, Microsoft- But, but, but this, is, this is pretty cool. It, it's it's amazing. It's 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 an odd human behavior based on a mostly religious holidays created one yeah. of the largest computing systems in the world, kind of by accident. And the smart thing that Amazon did was say, "Hey, like we've got all this extra space, let's just rent it out." And startups love that because they don't want to build their own servers. But it's their culture because they practice efficiency and making sure they maximize the use of everything that they have. Yes. That allowed us to, and again, I'm pointing this out because a lot of executives listen to this podcast and everybody says culture eats strategy for breakfast, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But seldom do I hear examples of that culture leading to something, right? And what you just said. Very concrete, you know, right. <laughs> it's extremely concrete, right? Like guys, like if you're looking out and a lot of the, the executives want to be general managers, right? And so, which means you have PL responsibility. And so learning to understand how to uh, maximize revenues is what everybody focuses on 
but you have to develop the skill set of minimizing expenses as well and focusing on efficiency. And that's the transition that one has to make to become a general manager of anything, by the way, right? So it's funny because this, this, okay, so basically, yes, they have to worry about top line revenue and they have to keep costs down. So once you take something that you've already bought and then just essentially get new revenue out, that's the simple yes. way of saying it. Yes. This is not a new concept by any means. This, yes, this is a 100%. great book by Paul Hawkins called The Ecology of Commerce. And it's an environment, it's a book about environmental sustainability, which is you'd never expect to be really, really pro business, you know, for the most part. But it's funny because he kind of threads that needle perfectly in that book. And he basically says is that, you know, if you're a major manufacturer of, you know, whatever cars, right, you're going to have a number of byproducts. The byproducts are like, for example, every time you um, you make an engine, you're going to use a bunch of hydraulics to, to do, do metal work and you're going to have all this hydraulic fluid. So your second product should not be a car. Your second project should be the main ingredient should be hydraulic fluid. And he actually argues that as, because that means that while if you're going to be a car manufacturer that also sells industrial industrial fluids, right, the packaging of industrial fluids will require a lot of plastic. You're going to have extra plastic as a byproduct. Okay, your third product is going to be a plastic bag, right? And the reason it's incredibly efficient because as you go along the product development you know, portfolio, the product's getting much, much, much more incredibly profitable, but they're all, there's no... It seems to be no um, thought going into the portfolio part. Like, why do you make cars sell hydraulic fluid and plastic bags? That's not a strategy. And if you look at the process by which all those things are made, you start finding out that they're making essentially plastic bags for free. And they're selling, they can sell them at below market rates, which is incredibly efficient and ridiculously profitable. And he covered that in his book. That book came out in like 1985 or something like that. Uh, essentially, the same principle is we have all these servers. What's the byproduct of these servers? Extra bandwidth and, and computing power. That's our second product. And that totally made sense. It's it, completely based on Paul Hawkins, uh, The Ecology of Commerce. Yeah, well, fantastic. And, yeah, and, and so the, the goal where was, is uh, cloud infrastructure day? Sorry, say it again. I said, where is cloud infrastructure today? Because I hear things like document AI. I hear things like like natural language processing, stuff like, right? Like, like it feels like the infrastructure is getting specialized for special for different use cases, but you're the expert, so guide us. Yeah. So there's two main sort of things that are happening. The first one is we're deciding where things get processed. So for example, if we train a model in, a, in cloud, every app that connects to the cloud has to connect to the cloud to get anything, right? Yeah, yep. That's great if you wanna train a big model and you just kind of like an API, you wanna bounce data back and forth, great. What happens when the data is really, really sensitive? What happens when uh, the phone that the app is running on is not connected to the internet? So you kind of have to have this local, sometimes they call it federated, uh, local way of processing a model. So download the model into the phone and then just run it locally in case you're not connected or in case uh, it's very sensitive yep, data that yep. can't leave the device. That's one thing we're seeing. It's kind of like we're adapting the new use cases. For example, the military loves stuff like this because they want everything local because when they're out in the middle of the battlefield, turns out like Wi-Fi is not usually available, yep. right? So they love that stuff. That that has a bunch of use cases for, for example, um, reducing bandwidth usage, battery life, that sort of stuff. The second one is just making the cloud better. And that's why using specialized hardware. So for example, Google has these things called TPUs or tensor, uh, tensor processing units. There's basically a 
graphics card that is designed explicitly for training AI models. It is incredibly efficient at this one thing. Uh, and that means you can take massive, massive data sets that might take, like for example, we work with a customer that uh, it took them 10 days nonstop of full computing power to train their model. When we put it into AI specific hardware like TPUs, uh, it took less than a day. So we were able to reduce the amount of time they were waiting for the models to come back to even see if it worked, right? So hardware that's specific to a task and the the other trend is where that task gets processed. It might be in a data center in the EU, it might be on device, it might be on your smartwatch, whatever like that is. So knowing which tasks uh, get processed where, because you can get a lot of efficiency out of that. Fantastic. Anything else that you would like us to think about or encourage the folks who are going to listen to this podcast around the world to think about? Yeah, the the there's there's two things that tend to blow up AI projects, and it's it's like painful to watch because you can kind of see them coming if you if you've seen this before, and it's like it. I used to I used to tell this joke where. Um, Maybe like three years ago, I had a manager and and she gave me some feedback and, you know, and it was a generally a pretty good performance review. And uh, she said, oh, by the way, there's one thing I think you need to improve. And I was like, let's hear it. You know, what is it? And uh, she said, you have this kind of, you have this sort of verbal thing that you do and you should stop. And I was like, what verbal thing are you talking about? And she said, well, sometimes when you're watching a presentation and you don't like the way it's going or you don't tend to agree you'll you can hear it you're disagreeing i was like i don't know i literally didn't know what she was talking about and apparently i had this really bad habit of going oh no like very quietly (laughs) under my breath (laughs) which which is just like a bad habit it's rude i i've stopped doing it you know and i didn't realize i was doing it like at that loud i was kind of like under my breath a little bit um and i when i see these these two things rear their ugly heads in AI projects. I kind of under my breath very quietly go, Oh no. Um, one of them is uh, it's a cultural problem is that you get people who like, they need a win. They'll say they'll, the, the phrases you look for is that like, I need a win. I need a, a quick win, stuff like this. That is not going to lean itself well to an AI based project because often it's about iteration and improvement as opposed to, a quick home run, you know, the first time you go up to bat, right? So cultural problems like that, I, I, you know, people say I want a quick win. I'm always like, usually AI is not your, not the answer to that, right? Because we'll train it. It'll be okay. We'll train it again. It'll be better. We'll train it again. It'll be even better. And then, you know, 10 cycles in, it's amazing. But I, I can't, you know, that that's not how you hit a home run, right? <laughs> like, you can't bunt your way to a home run in baseball. Um, but if you have enough bunting, yes. you know, enough bunts, you can you can probably score a couple runs if uh, uh, over time. Yes. Um, the, the second thing that really tends to blow these things up, especially when you're doing predictions of some sort, is the lack of understanding of the statistics of prediction. And this is really frustrating because you know most people in the business world are relatively well educated, but for some reason they all seem to forget their basic statistics. So if I make a prediction saying I'm 80% sure that it's going to be 75 degrees tomorrow, right? And it isn't 75 degrees. They'll 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 yell at the practitioner, the AI practitioner, or the prediction, and it's like, well, I said there was eighty percent chance. There's still a twenty percent chance I'm wrong, and that's and it's almost like their need for certainty is actually going to end up hurting them in the long run because 
if I, there's going to be a tomorrow every day, right? And I can, if I'm 80, right, 80% of the time, that's pretty good. Yes. What if we get to 90%? Like, that's fine. Yes. But there's sort of like a, um, a lack of understanding. And I try to explain it to people like, you know how you see a hurricane coming towards the coast of Florida and they say it's an 80% chance it's going to land between, you know, whatever, Fort Lauderdale and Miami Beach or something like that. The, that doesn't mean it's going to hit Miami Beach or Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> it's going to be somewhere in there. And it's nuts because you get at the people on the ground in the project are often get this and are fine with it. It's when the, the meta narrative or the talking points or the bullets on the slide get shared around that that context is lost. And it's often like, well, the model doesn't work. It's like, well, actually it worked statistically exactly. It was a promise, but there's nuance there. And I think that's what the lack of appreciation for nuance is often a problem in the world of AI. So those are the two things that I, I really, one's cultural, one's educational, I kind of look out for. And they do play off each other if you're not careful. Thank you so much for saying that. Because I work for a data company. We deploy machine learning and natural language processing to help companies. And when I joined this company, I had to unlearn thinking in absolutes and understand the iterative process and then understand how do I create the culture and teach people that this iterative process is okay. You don't actually need to solve everything with urgency. And as you solve it through the iterative process, you may learn new things, which would inform your overall hypothesis. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a program, not a, not a proje- project is, is kind of a way to think of it. And I've noticed this comes, this attitude, like, it depends. If you're building a product, this is the best you know way to think. Is is I'm gonna I don't know I'm gonna figure it out and it's gonna get better, right? That's the only thing I can definitely promise, right? Yeah. Um, this is often rejected by people that have consulting backgrounds or consulting um, sort of services, is because you're not a great consultant if you go in and say I don't know, <laughs> like I'm that you're you're paid to know things, right? So they often, but you you can still build things as consultancies get bigger at building things and, and less about talking and more about building, they yeah. need to adjust from saying uh, something that's vague to saying, I don't know, and I'm going to figure it out, but don't worry, it'll get better over time, which is less sexy, but but probably more accurate. Yes, yes, no, no totally. I, I, I totally agree, agree with what you're saying. All right, we've certainly gone over time, but this was a fantastic conversation and I hope this gives people encouragement to learn more about the topic and then share it with their teams because this will allow folks to build this new competency around AI and leveraging AI to better serve their customers, which is really who most people are in, in our audience. And so uh, thank you for joining the show. We have a couple different asks of you. Uh, nobody gets to go easy on the show. So <laughs> it's like Hotel California. You come when you want, but you leave when we tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the uh, is there one book, newsletter, uh, YouTube channel, Medium channel that folks uh, who are in the audience should listen to or read? Um, my favorite book recently that I've read um, is called uh, Bullshit Jobs. <laughs> and I, I read it to make sure that I wasn't in trouble originally, <laughs> but I actually ended up understanding the economy better because of it. Um, and it's the, it's a wonderful book. It's, you know, tongue in cheek, it's punchy, you know, it's kind of, it's definitely a fun, 
uh, while a little bit academic, it's definitely a fun read. Uh, and the premise of the book is basically that, you know, organizations create jobs so, for two reasons. One, so someone else will do the work and two, so they can get headcount underneath them. And that's how these jobs get created. And that doesn't mean they should be removed either. They can be a good jumping off point for people. It's like the creation of entry-level jobs, right? Um, it's not the, the worst thing. So it does have a very catchy title and punchy title, but it's a wonderful book that explains how uh, how jobs really get created in an organizational sense. I love that book. It was fascinating. It explains a lot of things in government, a lot of things in tech. Um, I totally recommend reading it. Fantastic. Um and, you know, this podcast is built by folks like yourself who come onto the show and recommend other people that we should bring onto the show. Who would be three other folks that you would recommend who are in data science or go to market or related that we should invite to the show? Um, three people. First would be uh, Merlene LaRoche. She's um, a strategist that... Uh, is getting very, very, very good at bringing data to typically an opinion conversation. Um, and you want to talk about go-to-market, strategy is all about go-to-market. Yeah. Or I'd argue go-to-market is all about strategy. Yeah. Um, she's wonderful. She's brought some very, very smart insights to a traditional advertising strategy that has been mostly opinion and, and kind of uh, emotional. She's bringing science to that, which is wonderful. Um, second one is uh, Sam McNerney. He's a behavioral strategist. Uh, he did some amazing uh, experimentation with how people perceive products, uh, brands, how they make decisions, and showed how you can kind of manipulate people into buying things. You know, not in a in a dark way, but essentially guide and nudge people through the way through language, through uh, packaging, through color changes, things like that. He was he did some of the most um, methodologically clean work I've seen in a long time. Um, the Last one I was actually a professor of mine in grad school. Uh, his name's uh, Ed Hoffman, Dr. Ed Hoffman. Uh, he's uh, ex-NASA, um, and he basically was heavily in involved in the uh, aftermath of the Challenger explosion and basically showed that it was organizational uh, problems that led to um, you know, there's a lot of intellectual capital in NASA, as you can imagine. He's the one who basically uh, led a lot of the research that showed that the way information flows within an organization, it literally can affect lives, you know, and it turns out that they knew there was something wrong with the Challenger explosion or they knew the wrong with the O-rings, whatever. The right people weren't being uh, heard and, and they didn't have a way to escalate concerns that are at the very literal, you know, like engineering level. Uh, and he talks about how important it is for organizations to um, let intellectual capital flow freely within the organization, if you will. Um, great storyteller, incredibly important uh, research he's done. Uh, I totally recommend those three people. Fantastic. Well, I could talk to you for hours, my friend. I think <laughs> there's so much goodness that we've talked about and, and it's, 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 you've been able to, to simplify all of these concepts so that we can learn and be inspired to use them for the greater good. So Ben, thank you again for coming on the show and educating us. We wish you the best of luck in your journey. Thank you so much and thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Sunny Side Up. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate and review us and share these insights with your peers.